this Sunday uh, is a special Sunday in the life of our church, uh, and that this weekend, five years ago, we had our very first Sunday as the Grove Church. Uh, so today is our, in essence, five-year anniversary as a church, uh, and it's something worth celebrating for the two people that began to clap. It is worth celebrating. But it's worth celebrating in as much, again, and noting that it's not how great we are, but how kind and faithful God has been. And continuing to lean into him for his continued blessing and help. That's what we need. That's what we need so desperately. And so again, there's a danger uh, within church to be all about ourselves or our brand, especially in America. Um, and so I think sometimes we can minimize things like that. But friends, it's okay as a family to celebrate what God has done and to have those markers to celebrate and to look back at God's kindness over these five years and to see what he has done. Goodness, I mean, again, if whenever we started this thing called church planting a number of years ago and you would have said, hey, Caleb, by the way, here's some things that are coming up. Uh, you're going to have to meet in a school for a number of years. Don't worry, global pandemic will come and you can't do that anymore. <laughs> You'll have to meet outside in the evening during hurricane season in Florida. It's going to be great. Uh, and then you're going to have to meet in the afternoons for a while, but eventually you'll end up in a basketball gym where um, who knows the things that are around, um, but they are uh, nonetheless here. The floors may be creaky, uh, but this is where you are. This room may not have been built for acoustics, but we use it to glorify God each and every Sunday. Uh, Caleb, that's what you're signing up for. I would have been like, there is, okay, we will see where we will be in five years. <laughs> oh, friends, it's good to look back and to see just God's amazing kindness. Because you could have never, I could have never written a story like this in five years to see what he did through all of it. Uh, and so we celebrate. We celebrate what God has done over these five years. And as we turn now um, to our study, we're jumping back into the book of 1 Peter to mark this celebration. A lot of churches uh, on a Sunday like this, they, they get really excited and they have some special series to like get people in because after Labor Day is a time, maybe when people are jumping back into the church, they have like some really cool series. We're jumping back into 1 Peter and our sermon is about submitting to the government. That's how, that's what we are going with today. There is a bit of this, though, that I do want to say as we jump in over the next few weeks, there'll be some difficult passages that on our own we will probably read and not like. But this is, I think, one of the benefits of expository preaching as we take the commitment to say, God, we believe this book really is your word breathed out by you, your spirit inspiring these writers to write your book to us. And every word of it is profitable. For, for teaching, for rebuke, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. And so we're committed to it. And so the commitment to, to it, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, there are times you come across verses that if I'm choosing verses, I'm not picking this one to preach on my own. But in the commitment to it, we're saying, God, I know there's something you have for us here. It's good. It's profitable. And so it moves us through not just the parts of Scripture that we are naturally drawn towards, but maybe even those that are difficult. And we have to wrestle with it to see what God has for us. So we're jumping back into our study in 1 Peter. And the spring went through chapter 1 all the way up to chapter 2, verse 10. That's the first section of Peter's letter. In it, he's focusing on what God has done through Christ for God's people. Writing to these people in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that were scattered across these cities and these small churches, um, Peter's writing to them to encourage them of the privileged and incredible relationship that they have to God in Christ. And he's just been going through a list of some of those amazing verses that we have in the Bible in chapter 1 all the way through 2 verse 10, focusing on that relationship. And there's going to be a transition here in, in verse 11 as he changes and begins to say, well, because of your relationship to God vertically, here's how that impacts your relationships horizontally. And the order of that's so important that we understand the way in which we live is informed by and secured by what Christ has done for us. It's not the other way around. We don't try to do good works and go, okay, God, will you love me now? God loved us while we were still sinners, saved us, reconciled us. Here's what Peter says, that we are chosen by God, that we've been given a living hope and an eternal inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, guarded and secure there in heaven, which is your true home. And it's made this different kind of relationship that you now have with a living God. And it's a type of relationship that angels long just to catch a glimpse of. 
a holy priesthood of living stones, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the incredible gospel that Peter's been, been going through all in chapter 1 up until chapter 2. And that leaves us there in verse 10. That was me literally just reading verses 9 and 10 there. This is where Peter's leaving us. But he transitions here in verse 11. And there's a hard pivot, right? Like Ross carrying the, the couch down the stairwell in the episode of Friends. He can't turn around. He's yelling at the other person carrying it. You need to pivot. you got to pivot. This wasn't in my notes, and I probably shouldn't have brought it up, but here we are nonetheless. Peter here is yelling to us, look at Jesus, now pivot. Turn, verse 11. Verse 11 and 12. This is where we'll be looking. we got two points today before we dive in. Two points are simply, I'm sorry for the friend's illustration. I thought it was going to land, but it obviously didn't. I know. I stick to my notes. It's, it's a good encouragement. Um, two points. First, that we are called to be living as exiles. This is verses 11 and 12. Living as exiles, verses 11 and 12. This is kind of the main principle that Peter's going to write about. And he's going to apply it then in different situations. As citizens, in our vocation, in our marriage. It's where he's going to take that principle and apply it in those realms. So today we're going to look at the principle and also how it's applied in the first realm of government. So secondly, we'll see then that we are to called to be living as exiled citizens in verses 13 to 17. So living as exiles, verse 11 and 12. Living as exiled citizens, verses 13 through 17. So that's where we're headed. So first, Peter gives this principle that kind of that, that, um, dictates and governs here the upcoming passages. Verses 11 and 12, Peter writes this. Dear friends, what a beautiful, beautiful saying. Some of your, some of your translations may say beloved. Again, you hear him rooting in that identity language. Dear friends, beloved by God, chosen by God. Don't forget that. Based in that, now I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. This these two verses, again, act as kind of the, the controlling theme here, the controlling lens, which Peter's going to understand the way in which he sees the world. And so we need to make sure we spend a little bit of time on this, because this is opening the section here in verse 11. It's going to run all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. It's the largest chunk of Peter's letter. How to live as exiles in a hostile world. This is the question Peter's asking. He's going to then play it out here in these verses. But this is the controlling lens. Oh, and friends, I think it's a lens, a perspective that we need to be sure that we have an understanding of. Because I don't think it's quite, I don't think that our culture in America as Christians naturally lends itself to understanding this truth. Oh, what do I mean by that? I mean that as Christians, generally there has been religious freedom here in this country. Things have been, in some ways, relatively easy for a number of Christians here for, for a couple centuries. Again, we're a very young country in the scope of history. Even in some ways, where I grew up in Louisiana, went to school in Mississippi, kind of in the South, known as the Bible Belt, there was even, for a long time, cultural pressure to live and to act as Christians. Of course, that's not the norm around the world and throughout history. It's a unique way. It's a unique place to live. And there's a lot of good in that. Hear me say that. Oh, but friends, in some ways, that kind of a background may lead us to feel like this place is home and we need those kind of rights. We deserve those kind of rights and we need to make sure to fight to keep those kind of rights. And so how are we to engage in, in a culture that seems to be running in the opposite direction? How do our hearts engage with that? How do our actions engage with that? And how are we to think about this? Well, I think verses 11 and 12 help us. That we are living as exiles. You hear that at the very beginning. Peter's beginning this command here, his exhortation. You hear the strength, I urge you. He's got this fire in his bones. Guys, listen, I urge you. And I urge you as strangers, as sojourners, and as exiles. Peter wasn't talking about physical exile to them. To the people that were in uh, modern day Turkey throughout uh, Asia Minor. He was writing of their spiritual reality. That they, now adopted by God, 
have a true and eternal home in heaven. And while they are here, they are not yet there. And so they, therefore, are strangers and exiles. Their citizenship is with God, Paul says. They're in heaven, Paul says in Philippians 3. Citizenship isn't here with any country. We are strangers and exiles here. That this is the, the lens in which to look at. And so how then, as strangers and exiles, do we engage with this world? We've well, maybe heard the, the phrase, the cliche, if you've grown up in church, that Christians are to live in the world, but not of the world. I think it's a helpful phrase, but I think that here, Peter shows us one other thing in, in understanding that and how we are to engage. That we are to be in the world and not of the world, but ultimately we are to be for the world. What do I mean by that? First, Peter shows we are to be in the world. You notice there in verse 12, look at this phrase, conduct yourselves honorably, where? Where are we to conduct ourselves honorably? Look at that preposition, among the Gentiles. And Peter here wasn't specifically talking about only a people group. He meant, he meant the world, those who weren't Christians, that, that we are to live among those who are not Christians, among the world, among the Gentiles. There is not a mentality of retreating. We do not pull ourselves away here in this world, uh, either into monasteries, some extreme examples, uh, but even just in decisions we make. That we need to make sure that there is this level of engagement that we are to have. We are to live among the Gentiles, among the world, among those who are not Christians. For this is certainly our call. We'll get to as to why in just a moment. Now, sure, there's reasons for wisdom and how we play this out. But we need to understand there's an impulse in which we live in this broken world, among the world, in the world. But as we are in the world, Peter's warning us, we need to make sure that we are not of the world. That we are not of the world. There's a number of words in here that show us that. Again, one is the reality that we are strangers and exiles. Again, that image, Peter's trying to get us to understand this world is not our home. We are not of it. We are of somewhere else. While we are here, we're in a foreign country. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are strangers and we are exiles headed home. We are not of this world. So much so are you not of this world and exiles uh, here while you're in this world. Peter says, here's what you can expect while you're here. Is that you need to, to do this because when they slander you as evildoers. Notice Peter does not say if they slander you as evildoers. When they slander you as evildoers. That if you are to live in a strange way in this world as a stranger. One that is resembling the light of the world and the light of darkness. Following Jesus, living for another world. Friends, it will be strange and people will say things about you. When they slander you as evildoers. Not to go right along with them once they go, oh, this person's just like me. Friends, you can expect slander. It will come. That we're not to be of the world. The other phrase we see here, Peter writing, that we're not supposed to be of the world, you see there in the command. That as strangers and exiles, you are to abstain from sinful desires. That as we live in this world, there will be sinful desires that rise within us. And Peter's saying, you've got to abstain from that. Don't just give yourself over to this. Anything that's contrary of who Jesus is, don't give yourself over to it. Fight it. Kill it. Abstain from it. This is language all throughout the New Testament. Or in Colossians, Paul talks about putting off the old man or this flesh or these sinful desires. We are to kill it by the Spirit, to put it to death. Romans 8. This is everywhere. Peter's saying you must abstain from it. And notice what we are to abstain from. Not just sinful actions. Look again. To abstain from sinful desires. Again, this is what Jesus does over and over again. Not just saying here are the Ten Commandments. But look beyond the commandment at the heart behind the action. The heart behind the sin. It's not just about murder. It's about anger in your heart. It's not just about adultery, it's about lust in your heart. And Peter, listening well to his rabbi, says the fight is here in our heart. It's within our souls. These sinful desires that are coming up, abstaining from them. Because they are, look at the phrase, waging war against your soul. Friends, you feel the weight of that reality. And I wonder... If the enemy is doing all he can to make us oblivious to that reality. Oh, it's just a little sin. It's just a little temptation. Or even, I just see in some Christian circles, the celebration of sin. 
Oh, no, you know me. I, I, I'll go. I'm not like these legalistic Christians. You know, I get drunk every now and then. Oh, friends, this is a sin that Jesus, God himself, died for. And this sin is waging war against our souls. And it's important to see in this framework, Peter's helping us see the end goal of these desires of temptation is not so that we can live a pleasurable life. It's so that we will be destroyed. It's waging war. That's the end goal of a war with two armies. The goal is for the other one to be destroyed. And Peter's saying, this is the reality. And so we are then to be hyper aware within our own souls. God, what are not just my actions, what are the things leading to those actions? What are the things I need to be fighting? Let me take with deadly seriousness the sin that's inside of me because it's waging war against my soul. I think of the image from Saving Private Ryan, the incredible movie from Steven Spielberg in World War II. And there's that scene that just, it's, it's hard to even think about. Whenever the troops storm the beaches of Normandy, and they're in those boats, and you see the cameras in the boats with those men. The brave, those brave men who knew when those doors opened, there's no telling what they were about to face. They storm the beaches. Those doors open, bullets are flying, so many are killed. Friends, that image is what I see here in verse 11, that Satan, with all of his force, is waging war against your soul. That he, again, it's, okay, the, the, we were the allies storming the beaches, but in the illustration, Satan is the one storming the beaches, just to be sure, I'm not saying that he is the allies, just to clear that up. The image, though, I think is powerful. That Satan is sending his forces on the shores of your heart, unleashing his forces to wage war against your soul. Friends, do we take it with that level of seriousness? Peter's saying, you're a stranger in exile here. Abstain from anything that leads you away from Jesus. The way in which he has called us to live. What it, how it is that he has lived. Not only to abstain, but we are also to conduct ourselves, to keep ourselves honorable. You see this in verse 12. So not only to put off, but also to put on. It's the other way in which we are to live and not be of this world. We're not just to keep from doing things. We're also to do certain things, to conduct yourselves honorably. Again, Paul in Colossians 3 used language not only of putting off, but also putting on Christ. Peter here is saying, don't just focus on what you're not to do. Focus on what you are to do. To conduct yourselves honorably. To be in the world, but not of the world. You're a stranger, you're in exile. Abstain from these desires within your heart and conduct yourselves honorably. Put on Christ. And why? Why do this? Well, Peter shows us it's not simply, as he's already written, to be holy for I am holy. This is what God has told us in Leviticus and he brings it up again in chapter 1. There is also a missional thrust to our obedience that we're not just to be in the world, not of the world. We're also to be for the world. Now you see at the end of verse 12, we are to conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Why? So that when they slander you as evildoers, what's to happen? They will then observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. So as you imperfectly follow Jesus and strive to look like him, living a life filled with good, or this word can also be translated as beautiful, a good and beautiful life that mirrors your Savior, that people who are not Christians will look at you and they will begin to say, there's something about the way that he lives and she lives that's different, that has this luminous quality like a light shining in the darkness. You hear Jesus' words that Rick read earlier, bleeding through here into Peter. Uh, people will see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. Peter's saying that your life and how you live it is connected to your missional witness, either for or against. Again, this phrase, on the day he visits, scholars debate exactly on what that means. Is this talking about when Jesus returns, standing before in judgment, then praising uh, our good deeds? Maybe they join with other Christians. They become Christians. They join with other Christians glorifying God as he comes and visits. Uh, still others, and I'm convinced of this and won't get into why, but Tom Schreiner, other scholars believe this is referring to God's visitation in salvation. 
use the God's visitation or when God visits in other places in the Old Testament to also describe uh, conversion, when God is uh, saving uh, sinners. And I think that's what Peter's getting at here, is that your good works can actually lead to the salvation of others. And that's the lens in which Peter's seeing here, that your life as an exile, as you follow in the steps of Jesus, it actually says something about the Jesus that you're following. And God will use that to draw people to himself. Now, still, the gospel is needed. It is news. You have to say it. My friends, do not miss the importance of how we live. To either hold up our uh, profession or to negate our profession. All you have to do is think about, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And you've opened up social media or you've seen headlines. And another famous Christian leader turned out to be a fraud. The new documentary on Hulu on Netflix feels like every month on some huge name Christian that ended up just being a total fraud. If you're not a Christian, I understand. You see that and you're like, man, these guys, just, it's, this is all of them. There's nothing real here. It's all just a show. And I, I totally understand it. I totally understand where you're coming from. And maybe even you struggle... You raised in the church and you're seeing people that are around you wondering like, is this, is this really Jesus or is this some kind of just like conservative show? And maybe you're beginning to question your faith in the first place. I have a lot of sympathy for you because I believe what Peter's getting at here is that when we don't follow Jesus, that is the exact opposite impact and pulls people away from Jesus. That's what Paul says in Romans 2. That you preach, you preach the law, but then you disobey it. Uh, you, uh, you are uh, leading Gentiles to blaspheme the name of God because they see your life and they're like, well, this guy follows God. I don't want to follow that God. And friends, the same is true in the other way. That as you follow Jesus, if you live a good and beautiful life, friends, that says something to a watching world. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Not one person put it this way. Uh, God doesn't need your good works. We're saved by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbors do. Friends, there's a missional aim to your obedience. Your good works, your beautiful works are attractive. They should be beautiful because they resemble a beautiful Savior. Respecting authority. Caring for the marginalized and oppressed. Fighting for true justice and committed to human flourishing of every human being created in God's image. Putting others before yourself. Living a gentle and patient life. Recognized by your kindness and self-control. Known by extravagant generosity and hospitality. And in a world that's consumed by fear and just low levels of chaos all the time, where people aren't Christians interact with you, they come to you and find someone with a deep and unwavering peace and joy. And in a culture where your platform can so easily be built off of what or who you hate, they find in you someone marked by love. Oh, friends, there's something beautiful about that. That's good. It looks an awful lot like Jesus. I'm not trying to paint a picture that if you follow Jesus, everyone will love you. Right? Peter's not doing that. Peter's going to talk a lot about, he's already talked about slander. He's going to talk about suffering and persecution later in the letter. So it's not that if you live this way, everyone will love you. Here's what I'm trying to say. I think Paul says it well in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. That there's this way in which God is working through us to spread the aroma and the fragrance of Christ. What's going to happen as we live in a world like that? This is what happens. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we are the aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. Friends, as you live this life, live it like Jesus, and part of the good and beautiful way in which you live will draw those that God has chosen to himself. And there are others who will hate Jesus, who will hate the way of Jesus, and it will be an aroma of death leading to death. Again, Jesus, who said that in Matthew 5, was killed by the government that he was underneath and the Jews that were around him. 
So it doesn't mean it's just all roses all the time. Because we are here living as exiles. That's the reality. We get that thing in place. Oh man, I need to move on, but I, there's, just, there's, there's one more thing that I have to say before we move on. And there's the reason why I think this is important. That we are to be in the world, not of the world, but for the world. Because I can sense a little bit in the church today, I think that we are missing where all of our force and energy and focus should be. What do I mean by that? If you look at these two verses, you will see that there's a missional thrust to them and there's this kind of war thrust to it. There's a war that's being waged. What I'm beginning to sense kind of in the waters, and maybe it's just Twitter and maybe that's just unhealthy and I shouldn't, see, I shouldn't read that. Maybe I just get off of Twitter. It's not the real world anyway, but anyway, I'm there. And here's some of the things I feel underneath. Is there's, this, there's this kind of growing sense among Christians that we are to engage in, in some ways, this language of a culture war. That we look at a culture and we are to engage on the front kind of lines of this battle to try to take back ground for our culture. In some ways, to kind of go back in the ways that it was, maybe 50, 60 years ago. I mean, to make sure that we're working politically to get the right people in place so that God's kingdom and his ways can be legislated. That's a good thing. We want to see that. And so while I think that that is true, that a, a country that lines itself to the way in which God has designed the world will lead to human flourishing, both Christian and non-Christian, I think that's true. The question is, is that the mission of the church and where we should be putting forth our greatest effort? Is that where the war should be waged? I mean, I can't help but think of Lord of the Rings, as I often do whenever I'm not doing anything else. And there's this scene at the very end of Return of the King. In Lord of the Rings, the whole plot is two really small hobbits need to destroy a ring. That's the, that's the story. They're on their way, and to do it, they have to throw it into a volcano. But there's a problem. There's an eye that, like, sees everything. That's the bad guy. That's Sauron. He's in Mordor, where the volcano is. The hobbits are trying to get their ring up there to throw it in the volcano. And they're trying to make sure that Sauron doesn't see them. They're at the very end. They're so close. Sauron senses the presence of the ring. <clears throat> well, the friends, the other part of the fellowship... Aragorn, Gandalf, and others are trying to figure out what to do. This is the very end. And they're having this conversation, and they realize there's one last-ditch effort they can do. They're going to storm the gates of Mordor, and they're going to have this battle at the Black Gates against Sauron and all the forces of Mordor, all the orcs, all the evil men, and they're going to be vastly outnumbered. They can't defeat them, but if they go, Aragorn and Gandalf are saying, if they go, they may be able to convince Sauron that they have the ring and maybe they feel like they can overthrow him and they can distract his eye long enough from the real problem, which is Sam and Frodo with the ring going up to the volcano. That's exactly what happens. They go Storm the front gates, an epic scene. They're surrounded, about to die, and they're at the very end. Gollum bites off Frodo's finger, the ring falls in the volcano, Sauron dies, all the people, uh, all his forces are obliterated, and uh, the good guys win. There it is. That's the story of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I heard the applause. It's a wonderful story. And here's the reason for saying it. You hear the strategy of the leaders there. They were saying, let's go and try to distract the enemy from where the real fight is. If we can get his eye here, oh, he won't see where the real fight is. But friends, I, can, I have this growing sense that the enemy is trying to distract the eye of the church to think the real fight is who's going to be in office and fighting this cultural war. And the war that's being waged, we see in verse 11, isn't out there, it's in here. The war is against the sin in our own hearts. Now, again, I've got to say it because I say it every time. I was talking to Leah about this. She was like, are you going to do your thing that you always say? I was like, I'm glad it's my thing. I guess it's a good thing to say. And so, yes, I'm going to do my thing. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't care about politics. I'm not saying that Christians should simply retreat or we shouldn't care about who is or isn't in office. It's not what I'm saying. We need to steward your vote well in a democratic republic in good conscience, voting for, uh, and praise God, we have the opportunity to vote. Friends, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, detach your hope from who you're voting in and attach it to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and fight this war that's waging against your soul. Focus there. I'm not saying don't care about anywhere else, but put our effort there. For the church, friends, if you look throughout the pages of the Bible, do you know where the greatest threat comes from for God's people? It's never outside the camp. It's always within. 
It's always when our hearts turn from the living God. And then you have forces that come. But friends, Babylon and Assyria and Egypt were no match for God. Do you know the great threat in the people uh, in the Exodus story? It was whenever they built a gold calf and they began to worship him. God needed an old guy with a stick and a stutter to free his people from the most powerful country in the world. It was whenever his people began to turn away. And Peter is helping us see, here's where the battle is. So it's not that we don't care, but friends, make sure our eye is on the, the real threat. This battle that's waging war in our own hearts. That we are here to live as exiles. So, Peter takes that principle then, and he's going to apply it then to our lives. And first here in verses 13 to 17, he's going to say this understanding of strangers and exiles, it plays itself out into how you live as citizens in your country. That you are to live as exiled citizens, verses 13 through 17. And all these next few sections with government and next with slaves and masters and finally with wives and husbands, you see this theme of submission that's running through. And Peter here in verse 13, he picks this up, says, here's how to live as a stranger in exile. Here's a citizen um, in your country. He says, submit to every human authority because of the Lord whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter here shifts and says, here's the way in which this understanding, verse 11 and 12, plays itself in the country that you live in. Again, for the Christians here in Asia Minor, underneath the dominion of the Roman emperor, then for us in the government that we live in. So you can just swap it out and say the instruction, really the summary here, the application, is that we are to honor the president. To honor the governmental authorities, to submit to them, whether, again, it's the president is the supreme authority or the executive branch, the legislative branch, the checks and balances is the supreme authority. Or all the way down to mayors or local or civic authorities, submitting to the government authorities that God has put in place. That is the practical application. And see, Peter's writing this because there was, again, already slander in the first century about what Christians were doing. Uh, There was uh, all sorts of things they were accused of, a subversion of the established order, spreading disloyalty against the government. Even the phrase that Jesus is Lord ran in direct contradiction to the claim that Caesar is Lord. And so that claim, which is central to the Christian faith, uh, people were understanding as a statement against the Roman authority. They're trying to overthrow. They're trying to raise this coup to overthrow the government. They're disrupting trades and accused of all sorts of shocking practices like incest and cannibalism. Understanding the Lord's Supper accused of cannibals, and the way in which they described one another as brothers and sisters accused of incest. There's all this slander in the first century. And Peter's saying, listen, the way in which we, in this new covenant, in this mission that God has given us here on the other side of the cross, the way that we engage in this world isn't with a drawn sword. We're not here to take down government authorities. We are actually to submit to these authorities. And if there's anybody who would have a hard time learning this lesson, it would have been Peter. Literally, the night that Jesus was betrayed, you know what he did? Drew his sword. Time for action. Take down Rome. The Messiah is about to ride in, and the king of Psalm 24 is about to take his throne, and I'm going to lead the way. Me, this fisherman with my sword, I'm going to lead it. This classic Peter. Can't help himself. Cuts off the ear of a guy, which also just shows me how bad of a fighter Peter was. I'm pretty sure he wasn't just trying to send a message. I think he was trying to kill him and just made it harder for the guy to hear. (laughs) Jesus tells him, hey, put your sword away. Heals the man's ear. And Jesus begins, again, continues this message of his kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. It's the same thing he tells Pilate when he stands before him about to die. This was hard for a zealot to understand in the first century. Friends, it's hard sometimes for us to understand even now. We need to pull and draw our swords for Christ. Friends, the sword that the church has is the word of God. 
the sword of the Spirit. We preach and proclaim it. This sword of vengeance is not given to the church. I want to read one other text. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip there. It's, it's longer in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. But again, it's going to help give this understanding of how Christians are to engage and understand the government and the government's role in the life today. Romans chapter 13. Again, Paul's writing to the church where? The church in Rome. Center point of the emperor. And here's what Paul says. You'll hear a lot of the similarities from 1 Peter. From 1 Peter. Paul says this, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. You hear what Paul's saying there? We are to submit to authorities. Why? Because as Christians, our ultimate authority doesn't rest with a, with a government. It rests with God. And there's no authority that comes except from him and the authorities that do exist exist and are instituted by God. He's the one that built them and placed people there. And you go, well, then what's God doing with governments? Well, friends, he does a number of things. Sometimes governments are used by God to bless those, sometimes as trials and sometimes as judgment. But they are all, the, the governments are not foiling God's plans. The legislative branch is not coming up with laws that God did not see coming. Dictators around the world are not finding power that God doesn't know what to do with. Oh, friends, he is the king of kings. Again, that's a phrase we hear a lot. What that means is that all of these kings bow to him. He is the Lord of lords. So then, Paul continues, the one who resists the authority of that government is actually opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good. You hear Peter's language there. It's similar. And you will have its approval. Because the government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Because it does not carry the sword for no reason. You hear that language there. For it is God's servant. Talking about the government. It is an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. There you see kind of the purpose of government as God has established. He has given the government and not the church this sword of vengeance to punish those who do what is evil and to encourage those who do, who do what is good. This is the purpose of government in God's world today. And that government is to act as God's servant. It's there to do very, th that very thing. And so we, therefore, must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes. Like, come on, Paul. You got to throw taxes in there, just there at the very end. This is why we pay taxes. We pay taxes since the authority are God's servants. Continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those who owe taxes. Tolls to those you owe tolls. He had clearly never ridden on the 429. <laughs> respect to those you owe respect. And honor to those that you owe honor. You hear almost the words of Jesus here. As people came to try to trap him. Oh, Jesus, you are, you're so wise, you're so, you're so good, you're so smart, you, you're, you don't show partiality at all. Should we pay taxes? These people came and tried to flatter Jesus and ask this question and try to trap, trap him. And Jesus, knowing their malicious intent, looks at him and he's like, hey, anybody have a coin on you? Again, it's classic Jesus. What, excuse me? Pull the coin out and he says, whose image is that on the coin? I said, Caesar. And Jesus responds, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. You hear this thread throughout that Christians are not to be a group of people overthrowing the government, but we submit. Why? Oh, friends, because we are strangers and exiles here. Our mission is not to establish our home here because our home is guaranteed there. And so while we are here, we are to submit to the governing authorities that God has established and put in place and that he is then using to carry out his will, either a blessing, trial, or judgment. And we are then to submit to them here in this world so that we, whenever people accuse us, uh, then it will roll right off. And we will silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. A friend, the force of this command from Peter and from Paul is only ratcheted up when you understand who he's describing as the emperor here. The emperor at this time was Nero, who was crazy. Assassinated his own mother, who helped bring him into power. 
was responsible for some of the greatest persecution of Christians in history, including dragging them into the Colosseum and having them eaten alive by animals. It was under Nero's watch that Peter was later killed and Paul's head was cut off. That's the governing authority that Peter is saying submit to and to honor. Because you can just hear, I mean, I can hear, I can feel it in my own heart and I can feel it in the gazes right now of like, okay, Peter's saying submit, but they don't know where we are right now and the type of politicians and governors and mayors that we have. Surely he's not talking about them. Oh, friends, he is. He certainly is. Well, and you go, well, well, what about civil disobedience then? Surely there's times to disobey the government. Are you saying just obey the government at all times? I'm like, well, no, we're not saying that. That's not what the Bible says. But I do just want to say, Peter doesn't even address that here. That's not the main force of the text. He doesn't get into it. So we do need to at least say, yes, of course there's a time for civil disobedience. Look at Acts 5. The governing authorities told Peter to stop preaching. You know what he told them? Uh, you know what? Man is not supposed to fear other men, but to fear God alone. And he disobeyed them. Okay, so Peter himself entered into act of civil disobedience. The Hebrew midwives in Exodus 2 who disobeyed the order to kill the children and saved Moses. Of course, there's time for civil, civil disobedience. So there are exceptions, particularly as you see here that we are to submit to every human authority because of the Lord or in other places for the Lord's sake. That when the command of the government runs in contradiction to God's commands, that's then the time for civil disobedience. Oh, but friends, you just see and feel the weight of what Peter is describing here in the cultural moment that they are in. To honor the emperor. To live as exiled citizens. This is what we are to do here in these two verses, verses 13 and 14. This is the command. Pilate the same way. right? It's not just the emperor's. But the governors that were sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil, to praise those who do what is good. You hear again the purpose of government there. Friends, that includes Pilate, who was the one that oversaw the trial and the murder of Jesus. So this isn't just good government. This is also difficult, oppressive, and some of the most difficult government that Peter and Christians have experienced. This is our posture. That we submit, and the citizens, the citizens that we're in because we're strangers and exiles, that we are to honor those in authority, to honor the emperor, to honor the president. Oh, friends, this is just drastically different from social media today. Honor doesn't get a lot of views, clicks, and shares. Dishonor and hot takes and acting like an upset teenager that didn't get their way, unfortunately does. But friends, Christians are called to live a different way. Honor does not mean you never disagree or vocalize concern. It means you do so honorably. You can feel the difference and how we engage in this. That we are to honor the emperor. We are to honor these governing authorities. This is what we are to do. Why are we to do it? Verse 15, it says, here's why you are to submit, because it's both God's will and it's our witness. Right? It is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. We've already talked about this. The reason why we are to live this way in submission is because it's how God has designed it. It is his will. And it also affects our witness to those around us. To be able to silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. To live in a way that when their accusations come, they fall right off. Because we live as law-abiding citizens. From the best citizens of this country should be Christians. That's what he's getting at here. And it's the same in every situation of authority as we will see. Peter's saying that our understanding as strangers and exiles should lead to a different kind of a life. That's why we are to do it. And so how do you silence these accusations? By living as the best citizens here in this, in this kingdom, by living good and beautiful lives. But how are we to do it? He, Peter closes here in 1617 with these principles, five different principles of how to be able to submit in this way. Begins in verse 16 by showing that we are to submit as free people as God's slaves. It's an interesting phrase. We are to submit as free people. So Peter's saying, you're not slaves to the government. You are freed. You are freed in Christ. The freedom that cannot be taken away. And this slavery from sin, you have been given and removed. You've been given forgiveness and taken from you condemnation. And that can never follow you again. You are truly free. There is no one that can bring you back into that slavery. Christ has come and he has freed you from that slavery like he did the Israelites in Egypt. You are free people. And as free people, you then can submit. 
You are not slaves to a government. You are slaves to God. And this is what we understand here. And this is a longer conversation we can't get into now. But this understanding of true freedom, it's not the ability to do whatever we want. That's not freedom. True freedom as God, the creator of the universe, has designed this world. True freedom is found whenever we follow the way in which he has designed us to live. In which we follow him. When we become his servants and his slaves, it's there that you find true freedom. If I were to go and take my car and drive it off into the road and go, you know what? I've got the freedom to go wherever I want to. You know where I'm going? Lake Mineola. I've got the freedom. I'm going to go do it. You know what? I'm never going to drive my car again. You know where the freedom's found is whenever I'm driving it on the road. I'm driving it where it's supposed to be. In the place here that it's designed to be. Oh, friends, the same true for God. That you look at the story of Exodus, that God has saved us from slavery to Egypt to slavery to himself. From death to life. He didn't just save them and go, all right, good luck. Go live wherever you want to go. He saved them then gives them the Ten Commandments and says, come now and follow me. Worship me. Find your true freedom here in me. We are to submit as free people, as God's slaves. Not as a cover-up for evil to say, well, we're free. We're forgiven. We can do whatever we want. I can sin a whole bunch because that just means there's more grace. And Peter's saying, no, you don't do it as a cover-up for evil. But you submit as God's slaves. And he closes with these four just beautiful principles here, these short sentences. Honor everyone. Honor the people that you like. Honor the people that vote like you do. Honor the people that look like you do. I know, honor everyone. Every single person created in God's image. See them as worthy of the dignity and value that God has stamped on their soul and honor them. In every season of life, in every situation, honor them. We honor everyone, but there's a different relationship within the church, within the brothers and sisters, within the brotherhood. We are to love the brothers and sisters. Peter then turns to the church and says there's now this different relationship amongst the church. You are to love those within the church, the brothers and the sisters. He then gifts, shifts our eyes up to heaven and says we have to be sure as we live this life in strangers and exiles, we fear God. We live as he alone is the one worthy of awe and reverence and worship. He is the one worthy of that, not anyone else. This is directly in contradiction to Peter helping correct the view of that time, which would have been emperor worship, seeing the emperor as divine, seeing him as a God himself and worshiping him. Peter saying, no, 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 honor the emperor as instituted by God, as God's servant, who is a, uh, a servant of the true king. Honor him, but you fear God and fear God alone. You worship him. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but give unto God what is God. Pay your taxes to one, but give your worship to the other. Fear God. And honor the emperor. Peter is trying to make sure that our hearts and our hope are not set on the wrong thing. This is the, what God has designed the government for. This is how he uses the government. It is his servant. Oh, friends, this is just a good thing for us to remember leading up to 2024. Because I don't know if you know there's going to be an election next fall. And I bet it's going to go great. <laughs> I bet everyone's going to be super chill about it. And there's not going to be any issues. I bet it'll be a great unifying moment in our country. I think as Christians, we need to prepare for next year. And there is this reality that maybe we'll feel in our hearts and place too much weight in the results of an election. Meaning, no matter what happens as a result of that election, no matter who steps into the Oval Office, there is still only one seated on this throne. And no one is moving him off of it. And there is a sense of settled ease that should set into the Christian soul. That we can step into a year of uncertainty and go, our job is not to take our swords out and to take back ground for Christ. We are to live the waging war against these sinful desires in our soul and to submit to the government, working for the good of all people, praying for God's kingdom to come, honoring whoever may be elected. But we fear God and we fear God alone. And our hope becomes detached from the one that we're voting in and it becomes attached to the one that we worship every Sunday. It changes the way that we engage. It disconnects our hope from this candidate. And friends, this is what every political slogan tries to do. It tries to get your hope connected to him or to her. I had a lot of fun going back and looking at different political slogans throughout the years. There are some very bad ones. And there are some 
worse ones. <laughs> 1944, uh, one uh, party had his candidates uh, elected, James K. Polk. A few years later, had another candidate, Franklin Pierce, going up. Franklin Pierce's campaign slogan in 1852 was, we polked you in 44, we shall pierce you in 52. <laughs> Grover Cleveland and Adlai Stevenson, here's their slogan, our choice, Cleve and Steve. 1952, Dwight D. Eisenhower, his was fairly just straightforward and simple, I like Ike. 1956, when he was going for re-election, thought he'd get very creative. I still like Ike. <laughs> 1960, John F. Kennedy's theme, his campaign slogan, a time for greatness. I mean, now here, kind of some of the shift and beginning to aim at these hearts of people that are voting. 1980, Ronald Reagan's slogan was a question. Are you better off? Are you, uh, are you better off than you were four years ago? 2008, Barack Obama, one word, hope. And then, of course, 19, or 2016, Donald Trump's slogan, make America great again. So many of these slogans trying to get at the heart of people. If you put me in place, oh, you can find greatness. You can find the hope you're looking for. You can be great again. Friends, moving into next year, I can't help but Echo the words of John Newton, great hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, wonderful pastor, was writing to his friend in 1775 in England, the year before the American Revolution was finalized in 1776. And here is his take on all the political unrest in England and New England. He writes to a friend and says this, there is one political maxim which comforts me. The Lord reigns. His hand guides the storm and he knows them that are his how to protect, support, and deliver them. He will take care of his own. Yes, he will extend his kingdom even by these formidable methods. Men have one thing in view, but he has another, and his counsel shall stand. Friends, may that reality, as we enter into a new year, may we understand that we live as strangers and exiles here, that our home is in another land, that our king is the king of kings and the king of presidents. And he is seated on his throne and everything is going his way. That no matter who may be elected, they are elected as his servants. And he is using them to accomplish his purposes. And we trust in him. And as we live this world, we can live as strange and exiled people as we submit to the government here within this world. Ultimately, as we submit to the king of all governments, the king of kings and the Lord of everything, Jesus Christ and him alone. Let's pray.